And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Today we're going to be talking about relationships. And uh, one of the things that I'm tempted to tell new members uh, of the church is if we haven't offended you yet, please be patient. We will. Uh, It's impossible in this fallen world to relate uh, to anyone closely without causing offense at some time or another. Often it's unintentional, but sometimes, frankly, we mean to be mean. It's part of our human nature. Now, relational problems uh, not only occur in the church, of course, they occur at work, at school, really any place where you're going to work closely with another person. I've done marriage counseling in the past where I really marvel, marvel at how this angry, bitter couple sitting before me could just a few years earlier have been on the altar just, you know, looking into each other with adoring eyes and saying, basically, uh, I'm going to love you forever. And you ask, what went wrong? Well, what went wrong was sin, in a simple word, is sin, uh, and not dealing properly Uh, when it comes up. Now, relationships can be the greatest, uh, just the source of our deepest joy in life. This morning, uh, Brother Kenneth was back. Uh, It's first time since COVID, okay? So since, you know, this time last year, he hasn't been here. Um, Two weeks ago, Sunday morning, his wife of 72 years passed away. And she was a source of great joy for Brother Kenneth. On the other hand, relationships can be a test. (laughs) Uh, You you know know what I'm talking about. And it all depends on whether we follow God's directives on how to work through relational problems, relational issues. Now, uh, what's the second greatest commandment? Jesus said the first is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. The second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So scripture is full of counsel on how to love each other. Now in our text, Jesus is saying we should be on guard against relational sins and we should deal with them biblically when they occur. So let's start by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you here just to say thank you for a chance to dive into your word. Lord, it challenges us every time we do it. And so God, the challenge is there before us today to consider our relationships and how to deal properly with relational issues. And Father, that's not an easy thing to do, but you call us to do it. So pray that you give us just wisdom, clarity of thought, and by your spirit, Father, uh, produce that in us, which would follow your word, which would be willing to do it, to be, to be obedient and obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, it's not easy to trace the flow of thought here in the first 10 verses. We only read the first four, but the first 10 verses, they don't really connect uh, greatly with the preceding chapter. Matter of fact, there are commentators who think that Luke is just stringing in here four unrelated subjects that Jesus had been teaching on, uh, talking about stumbling blocks, relationships, faith, and service. But I think that there is a subtle yet recognizable flow of thought. 
having just dealt with the Pharisees, this is, this is chapter 16, and their religious hypocrisy, Jesus now turns to the disciples. And he really has just a, a word of uh, corrective warning for the disciples. Now, the false teaching and the self-centered, superficial religion of the Pharisees, that's going to inev inevitably cause many of the sinners who had turned to Christ. You remember the publicans and the sinners who had turned to him? It's going to cause them to stumble in their faith. In other words, they're going to hear and see the Pharisees, and it's going to cause these young believers to stumble. So Jesus warns about the seriousness of causing one of these little ones, these new believers, to stumble. That's verse 2, 1 and 2. And he gives instructions on how to deal with relational problems. That's verses 3 and 4. And the disciples, they sense the difficulty of following Jesus' instruction. I mean, just preparing this, preaching it this morning, listening to myself say it again, it's like, yeah, this ain't easy. We, we kind of took a, in part, a little uh, unofficial vote this morning and decided that if you cut out Jesus' words in the Bible, Christianity would be doable on our own. But when you throw in there the red letters and pay attention to what he said, it gets to you real, real quick. So the disciples, they sense that following him is going to be difficult. So they say, how about increasing our faith? And he says, well, actually, the amount of faith you have isn't the issue. In fact, just a little bit of faith will go a very long way. That's verses 5 and 6. And then the real issue, according to Jesus, is adopting the proper attitude as a servant and, and not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Now, that's verses 7 through 10. So our verses this morning, uh, they warn us to be on guard against committing relational sins, and they show us how to deal with such sins in a biblical, godly manner when they do occur. So first, be on guard against committing relational sins. Now, the Greek word translated temptations there, uh, your, your translation may have a stumbling block. It's actually uh, it referred to the bait stick in a trap. You know what a bait stick is? It's the thing when the animal touches it, it falls out of the way and the trap closes on the animal. You know what I'm talking about? It'd be like what you put the cheese on. That's kind of the bait stick, right? And the mouse touches it, boom, it, and it gets him. Well, it came to refer spiritually to any enticement to sin, but especially to a serious sin that led to a defection of faith. Now, this might be a believer, or, yeah, believer that, that would cause a weaker Christian to fall into sin. It might be a, a false teaching that subtly turned the unsuspecting away from the actual truth. Now, to put a temptation in someone's way is to do or to say something that causes another person to trip up or to get off of the path of following the Lord. And when Jesus refers to these little ones, he's probably referring to the new believers from among the sinners and the tax collectors that had been just stampeding in to get into the kingdom. Now, the phrase little ones, uh, that pictures them as God's little children, <laughs> showing his tender concern for their well-being. It's just like us. As parents, we want to guard our children from the people who would, hard, who would harm them. Well, God is concerned that his babes not be hurt by those who claim to be Christians, but who set a bad example. Now, while each person, including the new believer, is responsible for their own sin, there's a sense in which those who are mature in the faith, 
they bear responsibility for the babes in the faith. So Jesus warns the disciples, pay attention to yourselves. Now this warning seems to go better with what goes before than what follows it. So it's a couple things here. First, we need to guard against relational sins because we are so prone to them. Jesus said, it's inevitable. The temptations will come. We live as sinners in a sinful world. So we're prone to sin against each other and people are prone to sin against us. But just because we're all prone towards these sins doesn't mean that we should just follow suit and go along. Rather, we should do all that we can to avoid taking offense when others uh, sin against us. We should do all we can to avoid sinning against others and leading them into sin. Now, the major reason that we are so prone to sin against others and to, to take offense when others sin against us is that in our sinfulness, it prompts us to justify ourselves and blame others. It started, started early on. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, God confronts Adam, what he said, what did, what did Adam say? Eve, he pointed at Eve. Then he, then he subtly blamed God by saying, by the way, you gave her to me, this one who led me into sin. It's your fault, God, it's not my, God, my fault. If you don't think that the, the, this tendency is inherent in human hearts to do this, then you haven't raised children. How many of you remember the cartoon Family Circle? Uh, it was a cute, it, it, was, it, it just captured life, family life. It gave us various vignettes. There's a man and a woman, they have four children. Now one thing that comes up rather often is this theme of, wasn't me. Here, the mom, she's got a broken plate in her hand. She goes, I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway. Which of you broke my good plate? Now look at the children. You know, they're, they're just standing there so innocently, but look who's, who's beside them. This is the theme that comes out rather a lot. There's a ghost that says, I don't know. One that says, not me. And third says, Nobody. In other words, none of the children are willing to take responsibility. They're shifting. Well, children don't have to be taught to deny responsibility. They don't have to be taught to pin the blame on their siblings. They do that rather naturally. We've got one parent over here going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. When Jesus warns, pay attention to yourselves, he means that each is up, each of us needs to look first and foremost to our own hearts. Remember, Jesus says we have to take that log out of our own eye before we can see clearly to take a speck out of somebody else's eye. When relational conflicts occur, the first thing you should do is ask God to show you what your part is in this relational problem, in this issue. And if you pray about it and you come to the conclusion that you're worth about 10% of it, you can probably multiply that by three, four, or five. And it's simple. It's because we're all prone to justify ourselves and to blame others. But healing is not going to occur relationally until each person allows the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, to look deep into their hearts and reveal the sin that is there. So we've got to be on guard against relational sins because we're simply so prone towards them. Well, B, we need to be on guard against relational sins because God views them so seriously. 
Jesus says that it'd be better to suffer a mafia-style death, having a millstone. You know what a millstone is? These things are, weigh hundreds of pounds. Have it tied around your neck and thrown into the sea so you drown. He said, it would be better for that to happen to you than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, he's not saying that the penalty for causing a little one to stumble is to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the sea. No, what God has in store is worse. You'd be better off for that to happen to you. Now, neither does it mean that Christians who cause someone else to stumble are going to lose their salvation and experience God's eternal wrath. If that were so, there'd really be no hope for any of us because we've all sinned in this way. David sinned in this manner when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. And in the end, it caused the enemies of God to blaspheme. So David's sin led to others' sin. Peter sinned in this manner uh, when he fell into hypocrisy out of fear of the Judaizers. And, and, and other Jewish believers and even Barnabas was following him in his hypocrisy. So Peter's sin led others to sin. Now, both men repented of their sin and God forgave them. Well, indeed, the true mark of every believer is that when they sin and lead another believer into sin, they, they, they repent. They ask for forgiveness and God grants it. And they seek to do whatever they can to restore the fallen brother or sister. Now, if the professing Christian does not repent, yeah, there could be good cause for questioning uh, their profession of faith. Now, Jesus uses this graphic picture to show us how serious relational sins are in God's sight. Now, his warning ought to scare us into taking our offenses against others very seriously. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, so you're at the altar and you remember, mm, this person has something against me, he says, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. In other words, our relational sins, they hinder our worship. Now, thankfully, the way of repentance, the way of forgiveness is always available. So Jesus goes on to instruct us in what to do when someone sins against us. So that's the second major point here. Deal biblically with relational sins when they occur. And this is a three-pronged response. You've got rebuke, repentance, and forgiveness. So first is rebuke. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, I'm, in my experience of helping people work through relational issues, this step is often neglected. It's just bypassed. Jesus clearly says, if your brother sins, the against you is implied, rebuke him. Now, let's face it, it's not pleasant to rebuke somebody. If it's pleasant to you to rebuke somebody, then you're probably not doing it in the right spirit and you're going to mess it up. But the command to rebuke a sinning brother is the first step in the, in the, in the, in the restoration process. You're not dealing with, with him biblically until you do it. Now, this, does, this doesn't mean that we go around rebuking every minor offense. Often in the church and in our families, we should act with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. That's what Paul says. Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. 
Paul again says, we who are strong ought to bear, we, uh, bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now, much of the time, we should simply absorb the offense and pray for the offender that he'll grow up in the Lord and le- learn to be more sensitive to others. After all, God has shown us grace. We should show them grace as well. So it kind of begs the question, how do you know when to bear with somebody in their offense and when it's time to rebuke? Well, there's six things that I want us to consider. And, you know, whether or not you rebuke is between you and the Lord, but these might help you think through this process just a little bit. First, if you're aware that the offender has something against you, just like we saw in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus commands us to go to him and seek to get the matter cleared up. We can't just shrug it off and say, oh, well, that's his problem. Well, Scripture repeatedly tells us to pursue peace with others. In other words, we're not to be passive about strained relationships. To be apathetic and non-caring is, is, is not to love the other person. We, we should ardently go after peace. Well, second... Is the other person's sin bringing dishonor to God? If someone who professes to be a Christian is acting in a way that brings shame to the name of Christ, and you know the person and are aware of the behavior, guess what? You're it. (laughs) You need to go and talk to him about his sin in an attempt to bring him to to repentance. To let it go is not to care about the Lord's glory or about your brother's testimony. Well, third is the other person's sin damaging your relationship with him or her. Perhaps the other person habitually gossips about others so that you find yourself just wanting to avoid being around them. Well, you don't have to be BFFs. You, you, but the loving thing to do is not to avoid them, but to attempt to help them face up to their sin and repent. Perhaps this person said something or or did something that hurt you, so you find yourself dodging him every time you see them. Again, the loving thing to do is to meet privately, confront what he did so that uh, you'll help him grow as a believer. Well, fourth, is the other person's sin seriously hurting others? Perhaps you see a young mother who verbally or physically abuses her children. Or it may be a professing Christian is ensnared in in drug or alcohol abuse and and along with all the inevitable deception that accompanies those sins. You're not showing God's love to let the person go on in this destructive behavior. You must rebuke with a view of leading the person to repentance. In case you haven't heard me, every time we've talked about rebuking, the ultimate end is repentance. Well, fifth, is the other person sin seriously hurting himself, like the drug abuse or alcohol addiction, whatever it is. If you see a Christian engaging in some sin that is going to destroy him, and you shrug and again say, well, that's his problem, I don't want to have anything to do with it, you're not a loving brother. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, does that sound familiar? Peter just told us that love covers a multitude of sins. Paul tells us, or excuse me, James tells us, that he who brings an erring brother back also covers a multitude of sins. 
Well, finally, uh, is the person's sin an often repeated pattern? If the person does the same thing again and again and again, then he is enslaved to that sin and he needs help getting out of it. Anger, lust, greed, selfishness, insensitivity to others, a lack of self-discipline. Many other sins can destroy a person's faith if he doesn't get the victory in Christ. If you see these habit patterns, you need to come alongside and offer help in the Lord. Now, don't go to rebuke your, uh, another believer until you first examine yourself and taken that log out of your own eye. Check your motives before God. Make sure that your desire is to do His will. And pray for the, op- the person's openness and for the right timing to go. Prepare yourself to act in love, even if the other person attacks you. But then, be obedient and go. It's always more difficult in the moment to go than it is to let it go. But biblical love says that we need to put forth the effort and go. Well, B, the goal of of rebuke, as I said a minute ago, is repentance. The goal of rebuking another believer is not to get it off your chest. It's not to give him a piece of your mind. It's not to prove that you're right and he's wrong. It's not to win an argument so that you'll have some ammunition the next time in the heat of battle. The goal is to bring your brother to repentance, to restore his relationship with the Lord, with you, and with others. Until you have that goal clearly in mind, you're not ready to rebuke your brother. In Galatians 6.1, Paul, he instructs, Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a, in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And the word restore there was used to mend a torn net. It was also the same word that's used when you had a, a bone that was out of socket and you had to put it back in. You had to fix it, right, so that healing could take place. The idea is to restore the person to usefulness to the Lord. Now, the prerequisite on your part is to make sure that you are under the Spirit's control, that you go in gentleness, and that you humbly be on guard so that you don't fall into sin yourself. Now, I should add that it may be that your brother didn't knowingly sin against you, and that it's just simply a misunderstanding. So rather than going with both guns loaded and cocked, you should go with a tentative attitude of trying to discover the facts. Ask a lot of questions before you do the confronting. There's a good illustration. A man was supposed to bring some chairs to a home Bible study, but he had a busy day and he forgot. And when he arrived without the chairs, the host says, Oh, that figures. Well, the man, he goes to get the chairs. And on his way, he's thinking, What did he mean when he said, That figures? Does he think I'm irresponsible or or stupid or, or what? So when he returned with the chairs, he asked the host what he meant. And the host laughed. He said, oh, no, 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 it had nothing to do with you. He said, I've I've just had everything gone wrong for me today. And this was just one more thing added to the list. So by asking for clarification, the man cleared up a misunderstanding that could have damaged their relationship. All right, so rebuke is for the purpose of repentance. And see, the response to repentance is forgiveness. If your brother sins uh, against you seven times in a day 
or excuse me, if your brother repents, forgive him. Then he adds, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, Jesus says, forgive him. Now, after seven times in a day, you might be inclined to question the man's sincerity. Jesus doesn't mean now that on the eighth time, you don't have to forgive him. Seven, you got to forgive. Eight, no go. No, that's not what he means. He means forgive as often as your brother repents. Now, you may need to talk to him about the repetition of the problem and about the sincerity of his repentance. But I think Jesus puts it like this to say, go overboard on forgiveness. If, if there's even a hint that your brother is repentant, don't question his motives. Just forgive and forgive and forgive again. Biblical forgiveness is a decision. It's not a feeling. It's to dismiss the case from court. To, the word means to let go or release. When you forgive, you choose to let the matter drop and you promise not to bring it up against the person in the future. Biblical forgiveness doesn't say, well, I forgive you, but I never want to see your stinking face again. That's not biblical forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness opens a way to restore wounded relationships. Reconciliation is the goal of forgiveness. Now, when biblical forgiveness is a quick decision, which it should be if there's repentance, the restoration of trust, that usually takes time proportionate to the seriousness of of the offense. If, if a man has molested your children and he repents, you must forgive him. But you'd be foolish to let him babysit your children. Trust is gradually restored as a person demonstrates growth in godliness, in holiness. Also, granting forgiveness does not necessarily re uh, mean removing all the consequences of the person's wrongful actions. In 2 Samuel 12, um, in, in 11, David um, sleeps with Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, and she gets pregnant, and uh, she's about to give birth. That's not too far off. And in order to cover up his deeds, he has Uriah the Hittite, uh, Bathsheba's husband, murdered. So he's committed adultery, and now he's murdered. And God sends Nathan to confront the prophet Nathan to confront David. And Nathan goes through this long story, and um, it's a great story, but um, in the end, David condemns the bad guy in the story and says he has to restore him fourfold for that lamb that he stole, the lamb that he stole fourfold. And Nathan just looks at David right in the eye and says, you are the man. And he speaks for the Lord and, and explains what he's talking about. And David's only response is, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says, God has forgiven your sin, but, <laughs> God forgave the sin, but the child will die. And Bathsheba's first child with David did die. Not only that, you remember David said fourfold? That was the first son, Bathsheba then Amnon, then Absalom, then Abijah was the fourth. David lost four sons. By his own condemnation, he must restore fourfold. God took four of David's sons 
So just because God forgives, there still may be consequences, and almost always is, consequences to our sin. Now, he did this for David. I say for David. It was for David. So that he and others could see the seriousness of what David had done. Now, you may wonder, should I forgive the person if he doesn't repent or if he only repents, let's say, superficially? In other words, is forgiveness supposed to be unconditional? Well, Paul says that we are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. God doesn't pardon our sins until we repent, but He made provision to pardon our sins long before we repented. And He actually acted in kindness towards us to lead us to that very repentance. So on our part, we must root out all bitterness toward the person who has sinned against us and genuinely seek their welfare by our attitudes, by our actions, by our words. We should pray for their repentance. We should look for opportunities to do kind things for them. Now, the minute they repent and ask for our forgiveness, we should freely grant it. That's how God forgave us in Christ, bearing the penalty for our sin. Former First Lady Barbara Bush spoke these words at a college commencement. She says, As important as your obligation as a doctor, a lawyer, or a business leader will be, you are a human being first, and those human connections with spouses, with children, with friends are the most important investments you will ever make. At the end of, the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test, winning one more verdict, or closing one more deal. You will regret time not spent with a husband, a child, a friend, or a parent. Our success as a society depends not on what happens in the White House, but what happens inside your house. End quote. Those are good, good words. Relationships are important to us, right? But more so, they matter to God. That's why Jesus warns so strongly about being a guard against relational sins and emphasizes so strongly the need for rebuke, repentance, and ultimately, forgiveness and restoration. If you're in a strained, rela strained relationship with a family member uh, or a fellow Christian or a non-Christian, I urge you, as far as it depends on you, pursue peace, pursue reconciliation. God will bless you as you seek to obey Him. Oh, let's pray. Father, tough words. Father, I pray that you would tender our hearts to consider the relationships in our lives that are strained. And Father, how you uh, say is the best way to deal with them. God, we pray that you would um, help us to do that. Give us courage to do what is right. Father, we depend on you for that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, there's another strained relationship that I really haven't talked an awful lot about this morning. And that's for those, there might be some out here this morning who don't know God. Uh, if, if you haven't received Jesus as your Savior, uh, Paul uses two different words to describe the relationship right now between you and God. It's enmity and hostility. Enmity and hostility between you and God. And that's because of your sin. Paul says we've all sinned. I'll tell you right now I've sinned. 
Um, we've all sinned. We can't, we can't deny that. That sin has separated us from God. So now there's this enmity, this hostility between us and God. God sent a remedy in His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul, uh, or excuse, yeah, Paul says in Timothy that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He sent to die on the cross, to bear our sin on that cross. Paul tells us two things are, are kind of necessary, and I talked about this last week. They're like two sides of the same coin. Uh, he says that it's repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. So this morning, if you know that you are separated from God, but you don't want to be, there's good news. That's what we call the gospel. Jesus died for you. All you have to do is repent. Repentance towards God. He's the one you have offended. He is the Holy One of the universe, period, of all creation. He is holy. The only way, you know, when you repent, you ask Him to forgive you of your sins. And He will do it. And you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's that simple. You, you trust that, yes, He bore your sin on the cross. And in doing that, God forgives you. You acknowledge that. You confess Jesus as Lord. And you become a child of His. And, and you will have this, res, this, this relationship that's no longer broken. It's no longer strained. It's because the enmity has been removed. There's no more hostility. In, in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, uh, Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's what chapter 4 is about, justification by faith. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, meaning in the here and now, um, you have peace with God. Not the peace of God. The peace of God is a great thing. To have the peace of God when your life is not peaceful. That's a great thing. But that's not what he's talking about. He says you have peace with God. There's no longer any enmity. There's no longer any hostility. The relationship is restored in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need Jesus this morning. If you're a believer, uh, this verse, I mean, this, this passage and this message should have hit you from several different angles. Uh, we all have relationships. How many, how many out here pretend, uh, that, that gave, my, gave it away. <laughs> how many out there would say that every relationship you have is perfect? <laughs> no, we've all got strained relationships. Jesus tells us this morning, like I said, if we just didn't have to follow the words of Jesus, this Christianity would be a whole lot easier. But He gives us these hard words for our benefit. This is between you and God and whoever that strained relationship is. I encourage you this morning, go before God. Talk about it with Him. Find out uh, and then go through that rebuke, repentance, forgiveness. Get that relationship restored. Jesus leaves it in your, you know, field right now. The ball is in your field, in your court. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.